hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, we're moving into mid-January of 2022. Lots of information in the news cycle, probably nothing bigger than what's going on with the Supreme Court and their evaluation of uh, the Biden CMS vaccine mandates, which could decide a lot for the nation. Uh, I was uh, brought on Fox News actually during the day from my office in Dallas, Texas, uh, to go on with Laura Ingram and give an update. Fox really wanted me on. And I can tell you, when I go on through my computer, which I don't like to do, I basically stare into a black screen and I just have to listen to her words and then respond to it. It's much different than being in a studio where I get to see the live feed of all the uh, information that's coming over visually. But I wanted to give you uh, this insight from this interview that I had with Laura Ingram on the Ingram Angle, and this came out this week. In some hospitals that we've talked to, up to 40% of the patients who are coming in with COVID are coming in not because they're sick with COVID. Again, we said so. This is obvious stuff. Their COVID house of cards is falling in on itself. But courageous medical experts featured here as far back as May of 2020 warned that obsessing over these things, obsessing over case counts and mandating vaccines would crush our hospitals, our businesses and our schools. And lo and behold, even California now sees it can't go on this way forever. It's now allowing asymptomatic hospital staff to return to work, calling it temporary flexibility. Once again, unions do not want their people back in the workplace, period. They can always count on the unions. So it was two weeks to flatten the curve. It was 100 days of masking. It was back to normal by 4th of July. It was if you're vaccinated, you won't get COVID and you'll get your life back. It'll all be normal again. All lies. But as with lies, they're eventually overtaken by truth and experience. And the double-barreled impact of both are now hitting the COVID control squads who've exploited a tragedy for their own political and economic gain. And that's the angle. Joining me now is Dr. Peter McCullough, a cardiologist and epidemiologist based in Dallas, Texas. Dr. McCullough, um, you and I have gotten to know each other during this odyssey where these lies were used to hurt people's careers, uh, to silence them, to demonize them, uh, to take away perhaps hospital privileges. And you and others like you were right all along. I know we're not here to just pat you on the back, but you knew it. Osqui and all these other guys knew it. Why didn't the others know it? Or did they and they just pretended they didn't? Laura, you've put together a team of uh, medical experts that I think have really been true to the data. We've cited the data, followed this very carefully over time. And many occasions we've said, what's wrong with those who are following a false narrative? Are they simply behind on it or is it intentional? Did they know or, or, do, or should they have known? Uh, you know, we still can't answer these questions today, but you know, at the level of the Supreme Court, 
to be giving out grossly wrong information in uh, you know spoken statements by the justices uh, really takes this to a level that I think historians will record as atrocious. Now, uh, Walensky of the CDC was asked, Dr. McCullough, by our own Brett Baer, about COVID deaths from uh, COVID or deaths from COVID versus with COVID. Now, watch this response. Do you know how many of the 836,000 deaths in the U.S. linked to COVID are from COVID or how many are with COVID, but they had other comorbidities? Do you have that breakdown? Um, yes, of course, with Omicron, we're following that very carefully. Our death registry, of course, um, takes a few weeks to and is, uh, takes a few weeks to collect. Um, and of course, Omicron has just been with us for a few weeks, but those data will be forthcoming. Dr. McCullough, she completely avoids the question again. He wasn't talking about Omicron, which is relatively new. We have almost two years of data, and they still can't tell us what deaths are really COVID caused deaths versus three, four comorbidity caused deaths. You know, that's true. I had a chance to go over this with Scott Atlas, another one of your contributors uh, on the medical scientific side. And Scott believes that our officials, the CDC officials and NIH officials, that they're simply not competent in managing this rapid flow of data. What we know from uh, sources actually on the CDC website, but also the Italians have recoded their deaths. It, it's clearly, uh, you know, basically 10% or fewer of all the deaths is it purely driven by COVID-19 syndrome. The Italians think it's 3%. The rest of it is largely contributed to by other comorbidities. I mean, the best example would be Colin Powell. Colin Powell, uh, you know, had terminal myeloma. He was fully vaccinated. He died with COVID. Uh, you know, people didn't make a big deal out of COVID being a determinant of death, appropriately so, because he was at the end of his life. That That is, uh, what happened to Colin Powell is common to uh, many, many of the deaths we've seen in the United States. Again, you're right. We knew this data out of Lombardy, the Lombardy region of Italy, in March and April of 2020 which is what we were talking about at the time, was hypertensive, diabetic, high BMI, uh, you know, very old individuals generally. That data was there in the first two months of COVID. Uh, it's, it's very curious as to why this is all ignored. I have to ask you, though, about this push, Dr. McCullough, to boost Americans as, as fully vaccinated. So university students are told you have to get boosted by X date or you're not welcome on campus. What about that, given Omicron? At this point in time, the mandates uh, should be completely dropped across the board. Uh, Omicron has been several things. One is a huge syndromic change. It's basically uh, very similar to getting a head cold. For those who are uh, previously immune and those who are vaccinated, it sometimes is almost an imperceptible mild syndrome that could last a few hours or a day or so. Uh, it is immaterial to vaccination. There are now several studies, as, you, as was pointed out, that there really is no observed vaccine efficacy that we can see in community studies, and we wouldn't expect any protection against hospitalization and death. The, the virus has simply outmutated uh, the ability for the vaccines to have any so, control. So, so, Dr. McCullough, the CDC, though, is already pushing for the fourth booster shot. The New York Times is reporting that some people with weakened immune system can get a fourth dose as early as the coming week. And other recommendations uh, we expect to come regarding uh, the fourth booster shot. What, what's going on here? Is this a Pfizer deal? Is like what? What is this? Because it makes zero sense. It tips the scales far more towards harm than benefit. Because if there's no 
anticipated benefit. We know with each injection, there's what's called a, a reactogenicity, that with each injection, the body actually uh, reacts more severely to the vaccines. And, you know, sadly, there have been far too many deaths that have occurred shortly after vaccination, uh, far too many hospitalizations, uh, injuries, uh, children with hearts being injured, myocarditis. And now the CDC is reporting in the VAERS system permanent disability. Dr. McCullough, thank you for being a voice of courage and wisdom throughout this entire pandemic. So you can see that Laura Ingram, I think she clearly gets it. I mean, she understands that something is going on, that things are not making sense, and she's trying to do the best she can, you know, being a major media reporter, bring things to light. Um, I think we're going to have to get past this idea that things are, don't make sense or that they're incredible uh, or they're just not believable or ridiculous. Uh, we're going to have to get to the point where people just don't want this, that uh, they know that they're being exposed to risks without any benefits. The vaccines still haven't been changed from the very beginning. There's still genetic vaccines that, uh, that really carry tremendous risks to them. I wanted to share this other story about just uh, the complete opposite of we've done, uh, and that is just letting the virus uh, run its course in the community. Don't do a single thing about it. Just treat patients who get sick expectantly, get them through. The community that's actually done this in the United States is the Amish, uh, and they're located in Michigan, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and let's hear this report that's come in on how the Amish have done with COVID-19 in the United States taken to address the COVID-19 threat, hindsight is still very much underway. For your consideration, a story and outcome you probably aren't hearing much about anywhere else. It takes place in the heart of Amish country. Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Thousands of families lead lives largely separate from modern America. The Amish are a Christian group that emphasizes the virtuous over the superficial. They don't usually drive, use electricity, or have TVs. And during the COVID-19 outbreak, they became subjects in a massive social and medical experiment. So it's safe to say there was a whole different approach here in this community when coronavirus broke out Absolutely. than many other places. Absolutely. Calvin Lapp is Amish Mennonite. There's three things the Amish don't like, and that's government. They won't get involved in government. They don't like the public education system. They won't send their children to education. And they, they also don't like the health system. Uh, they, they rip us off. Those are three things that we feel like we're fighting against all the time. Well, those three things are all part of what COVID is. After a short shutdown last year, the Amish chose a unique path that led to COVID-19 tearing through at warp speed. It began with an important religious holiday in May. When they take communion, they, 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 they dump their wine into a cup and they take turns to drink out of that cup. So you go the whole way down the line and everybody drinks out of that cup. So if one person has coronavirus, the rest of the church is going to get coronavirus. First time they went back to church, Everybody got coronavirus. Lapp says they weren't denying coronavirus. They were facing it head on. It's a worse thing to quit working than dying. But to shut down and say that we can't go to church, we can't get together with family, we can't see our old people in the hospital, we got to quit working. You're working. It's going completely against everything that we believe. And you're, you're changing our culture completely to try to act like they wanted us to act the last year. And we're not going to do it. Steve Nolt is a scholar on Amish and Mennonite culture and Mennonite himself. He's studying Amish news publications to analyze community-wide trends. So are you saying as of about May of 2020, things kind of went back to normal in the Amish community? Yeah, it's kind of by, by, by the middle of May, it's sort of like back to the typical behavior again. That also meant avoiding hospitals. 
I know of some cases in which Amish people like refused to go to the hospital, even when they were very sick, because if they went there, they wouldn't be able to have visitors. And it was more important to be sick, even very sick at home, uh, and have the ability to have uh, some people around you than to go to the hospital and be isolated. Then last March, remarkable news. The Lancaster County Amish were reported to be the first community to achieve herd immunity, meaning a large part of the population had been infected with COVID-19 and become immune. Some outsiders are skeptical, and solid proof is hard to come by. Even those who, who believed that they had COVID uh, tended not to get tested. Um, their approach tended to be, uh, I'm sick, I know I'm sick, I don't have to have someone else tell me I'm sick. Uh, or um, a concern that if they um, you know, got a positive test, they would then be asked to really dramatically limit what they were doing in a way that um, you know, might be uncomfortable for them. So, so we don't have that testing number. We didn't want the numbers to go up because then they would shut things more. What, what's the advantage of getting a test? One thing's clear, there's no evidence of any more deaths among the Amish than in places that shut down tight. Some claim there were fewer here. That's without masking, staying at home, or another important measure. Did most of the community, at least the adults, get the COVID-19 vaccine? Again, we don't have uh, data on that, but um, I, I think it's uh, pretty clear that, um, that in percentage terms, uh, relatively few did. Well, we're glad all the English people got their COVID vaccines. That's great because now we can do, we don't have to wear a mask. We can do what we want. So good for you. Thank you. We appreciate it. We, us, no, we're not getting vaccines. Of course not. We all got the COVID. So why, why would you get a vaccine? By staying open, the Amish here have one tangible 2020 accomplishment few others can claim. We, we, we have this joke when everybody else stopped, started walking, we started running. We made more money in the last year than we ever did. It was our best year ever. Did the Amish really find a magic formula? They say yes, and they don't care who doubts it. Yeah, all the Amish know we got herd immunity. <laughs> of course we got herd immunity. When the whole church gets coronavirus, we know we got coronavirus. Yes, we think we're smarter than everybody. I mean, we shouldn't be tagging, but we, we think we did the right thing. Nolt the Scholar is publishing a paper on the Amish social response to government mandates and COVID-19. Well, I tell you, that's a terrific, terrific testimony to doing things uh, a separate way. And then analyzing what turns out of it. And you heard what he said in the end. He goes, you know, I think we did the right thing. And many would agree with him that, in fact, the Amish did do the right thing. They just, they let the virus deal with, um, uh, <clears throat> they basically um, dealt with the issue as it came forward. They handled the virus. Some people got sick. They got them through it. Uh, they're largely declining the vaccines. And now they're moving on. And so uh, they have a situation where, uh, they can rest assured. Now, almost certainly they're going to get the Omicron variant, uh, but they don't have, um, uh, in a sense, a, a sense of impending doom. They're not wearing masks. Nobody in that clip was impaired from the typical business of the day for the Amish community. What a refreshing approach. And I, I wanted to share that with you. I thought that was terrific reporting. I also wanted to uh, publish uh, a quick clip from Christina Borgeson at the Whistleblower Newsroom. And this uh, deals with the publisher's release of Robert F. Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, of which uh, I'm mentioned in the book, I think probably the most of any uh, treating physician, but other leading physicians, Pierre Corey, uh, Paul Merrick, uh, Harvey Risch as an analyst, all heavily mentioned in RFK's book. Let's listen to Christina Borgeson. She's been on the McCullough Report before. She's a former a senior producer for uh, CNN. And uh, let's listen in on Christina. Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. 
My guests today are a publisher and an activist who are part of bringing to the public what has been described as the most censored yet best-selling book in America right now. Tony Lyons is president and publisher of Skyhorse Publishing, a house dedicated to releasing the works of authors that are too hot for other publishing houses to handle. In this case, Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book titled The Real Anthony Fauci, Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. Lyons is joined today by Sophia Karstens, an activist with Kennedy's Children's Health Defense Organization. Ms. Karstens worked with Kennedy on the book. They're here to talk about the book, how it's being censored, and its impact on the public. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Christina. Thanks so much. <laughs> so I want to start with you, Tony. I, I want to know uh, what your first reaction was when you got this manuscript. Yeah, when I first started to see pieces of this manuscript, I thought it was just such an incredible story and, and such such a scary story to see that the most most powerful health official in the United States uh, looks to be also the most corrupt, powerful person in the United States. So, you know, somebody who who is really not at all concerned with public health, but is just concerned with return on investment for the things that that he is in, involved with and the partnerships and the financial entanglements that that he's a part of. Now, I, I know that, you know, Skyhorse, that's their brand really is to do these these hot potato books. Um, but when you saw this, uh, did you think, oh, boy, this is a big, thick book. Am I going to be able to sell this thing? Am I going to lose money on this thing? Or, you know, what crossed your mind in terms of what you thought was going to happen when this book was published? Yeah, my my first thought was that I that I felt very lucky that I was going to be able to be the person bringing this book to the public. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really and I'm not afraid of consequences. Um, like I've said before, I'm more afraid of, of not bringing these kinds of stories to the public. And I, and I think that a lot of investigative journalists now should be ashamed for the kinds of things that they're doing. So if you look at just this book specifically, you see that this is a book that clearly people want to read. It sold 600,000 copies in all formats in, in six weeks, um, you know, which is just an incredible number. Uh, and that is despite this just overarching, I mean, this total media blackout on every kind of level. And, and it's not just the uh, media, it's it's bookstores, libraries. Um, but then, you know, when you look at what journalists have done here, so the best-selling book in America over this period, and no journalist has reviewed the contents of the book anywhere. Um, so no major newspaper has addressed any of the claims in the book. But then there's article after article coming out that attack the messenger. So they attack Robert F. Kennedy Jr. saying every bad thing they can lump on with nothing new. Nothing new has happened. There have been these stories following him for all the time that he's been fighting corruption and greed at the corporate level and the government level the response has always been attack the messenger 
try to ignore the message in any way that you can. What are, what are some of the more glaring examples <clears throat> of the uh, media, of the mainstream uh, hit pieces on him? One of the big ones, uh, the, the New York Post went full Mockingbird <laughs> um, a few weeks prior to the book being released. And the interesting thing about that particular hit piece, it was so absolutely bizarre. I mean, it was just like this person with a weird chip on their shoulder saying that he's a weirdo and his hand smells. And it just it was so absolutely wait, bizarre. Wait, what? First of all, what was the thrust of the uh, of the who wrote it? Do it was remember? a woman. It was a woman. And I Tony probably remembers her name because yeah, Maureen Callahan. She's a she she's a writer. And if you look at it, you know, she's she's attacking Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for spewing out misinformation in her mind. So I, w I would like to address that later. But but what's fascinating there is how many things she got wrong. <laughs> that's what's hilarious about it. You know, that's a, a, you know, a review by two of the people, the publishers that are working to get Robert F. Kennedy's book out. And it's interesting that his book, The Real Anthony Fauci, has sold more copies than any other book during the period of time and has not gotten a book review from any of the major periodicals. Nothing, uh, just hit pieces. So what I wanted to do is if people ask about Robert F. Kennedy, he's in charge of the Children's Health Defense Fund. I've gotten a chance to know him. Uh, we'll see him shortly at a major meeting in Washington. Um, but I wanted to just play a clip from, I thought, quite a moving speech that he gave in Milan, Italy, uh, or you know, just a few months ago about where we are going in this uh, overall program of uh, worldwide uh, control, totalitarianism, and loss of freedoms. This is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in an outdoor speech in Milan, Italy, uh, just a few months ago. No government in the history of mankind has ever relinquished power voluntarily. The power that they have taken away from us over the past 20 months, they will never give back. They have taken away our freedom of speech. They have closed the churches. They have taken away jury trials against companies, no matter how negligent they are, no matter how reckless they are, no matter how grievous your injury, you cannot sue that company. They have taken away our property rights in the United States. They closed a million businesses for a year with no just compensation and no due process. They have taken away our right to be free of warrantless searches and seizures and surveillance by the government. In the United States, all of those rights are enumerated in our Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution. And among the most important of those rights, it, after the right to free expression, which is gone, is the right to be able to participate in rulemaking. So when the government wants to pass a law, it has to explain, it has to publish the law, 
the proposed law. It has to explain the scientific basis for that law. It has to do a cost-benefit analysis of that law and explain it to the public. And then we have comments that the, all the public can participate. And then we have a hearing where people oppose the law, like myself, can bring in our own scientists and experts and scientific studies. And it's all transparent. All of those safeguards have been obliterated. Today, the law is what one man says it is. The top doctor in America, Anthony Fauci. One week. In one month, in March of 2020, Tony Fauci told the world masks don't work. They're scientifically worthless. Two months later, he ordered every American to put on a mask. He did not give us any scientific study that made him change his mind. He simply told us, that's the new law, do what you're told. Oh, all of these rights that the founders of our country died for with their sacrifice, their properties, their livelihoods, to give us the Bill of Rights. And all of those rights in 20 months have been obliterated, taken from the American people, but not just Americans. This is a global coup d'etat against liberal democracy across the planet. And all of these rights that were taken away from us, these governments said it was temporary, it was only two weeks, it would be over. In truth, you can all see what's happening. They are taking those rights and they will never give them back unless we make them. This is a way to control your money. 
Once you have that green pass and they have the digital currency, if somebody tells you do not leave Milan and you go on a trip to Bologna, your money won't work in Bologna. If the government tells you don't buy pizza, they can make it so your, your green pass won't buy pizza at a pizza store. They can control any aspect of your life. Well, that's Robert F. Kennedy in Milan, and I encourage you to watch that video. He's a powerful orator. Uh, he is a man of great standing and virtue. Uh, he's really a man of the people, and his book is uh, by uh, Robert F. Kennedy's the author, and the book is uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, uh, and it is a really good read. I'd encourage everybody to take time and read that so they can better understand what's going on in the world around them. Well, I want to move into our, uh, turns out to be one of our most popular segments on the McCullough Report, and that is the music segment. Everybody is sending me wonderful uh, music clips. This one got sent to me by singer Cat James, and it's by Sean uh, Galloway, and he's singing the Love Lucian, and Cat uh, James is singing backup, so she'll appear a little bit later on in the video. But I wanted to play that for you, and uh, you know, this is a very colorful video. It's a very colorful song about love. Choose. 
I see us healing the darkness dying. I see us dawning as one world united. What do you choose? Love or fear? Oh. Sean Galloway and a wonderful cast of uh, <clears throat> singers uh, assisting him. And I want to thank Kat James. Uh, Sean Galloway has actually also reached out to me as well uh, on the music segment of the McCullough Report. Terrific addition. Uh, well, we have a great show for you. On the back side of the McCullough Report, uh, we have physician assistant Claire Rogers. And Claire is in a, a section of Georgia between Atlanta and Chattanooga. She's going to tell us about her community uh, about the changes there, physicians treating COVID-19, the Omicron variant, and then the role she's played in helping educate patients. Uh, Claire's been integral in the oral nasal virucidal therapy for COVID-19. She's done a wonderful job, wonderful lady, and, uh, and I think you'll really welcome her to the show. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. I want to put a good word in for Healthy Cell. Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. Uh, this is a terrific product. I'm looking at the box now. I'm going to take one before I go to bed tonight. Now, it has products in it that help us fall asleep easily. They include melatonin, lemon balm extract, and GABA. Uh, it has a blend of of substances that help lower body temperature and give more relaxed musculoskeletal uh, sleep. And that's glycine, magnesium, and calcium. And then uh, it has uh, key ingredients that help deep and lasting sleep. Uh, L-theanine, vitamin D, and vitamin B6. And then lastly, it has um, substances that help with creativity boosting during REM sleep. And that uh, includes 5-HTP, uh, a, a B vitamin and GABA. So uh, this is important. These come in gel packs. You can shoot it, mix it, or blend it. Uh, I have a box right here in my bedroom where I can uh, take it right before I go to bed because you don't have to wait for it to be absorbed. It's absorbed instantaneously. You can probably tell I have a bit of a head cold now and I haven't been sleeping well. So I really want to get a restorative sleep and see if I can't power through the rest of the week and get back. So please, please try Healthy Cell. A REM sleep supplement, go to HealthyCell.com and uh, put in out loud in the promo code 
to get 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. It was a vision that gave birth to a unique multimedia platform that would combine classic talk radio, great writers, and memorable podcasts and videos. AmericaOutloud.com is a conservative leader in a field that is predominantly run by far-left progressive globalists. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome to the first time to the McCullough Report, Miss Claire Rogers, a Claire physician assistant. She went to undergraduate at uh, Erskine College and then went on to the Medical University of South Carolina and trained as a physician assistant, which is actually very difficult to do. It's hard to get into PA school. Uh, she settled in uh, Roan, Georgia, where she uh, works actually in a dermatology practice, but she's gained a lot of experience in advising friends and family and others about COVID-19 outpatient treatment, uh, and in particular, some of the topical therapies that we use. So we just wanted to have a conversation with Claire about uh, what, what she's seen uh, through the course of the pandemic and where she thinks things are heading. Claire, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you for having me, Dr. McCullough. Well, why don't you set the stage? How did you get involved in COVID-19? I've had an interest in COVID since um, my mother-in-law passed away from COVID or with COVID um, in January 2020. And I really developed an interest in um, how I could help family and friends who may develop COVID um, with early therapeutics um, because she was, my mother-in-law was unable to have any kind of early therapeutics, much less in the hospital. Once she was hospitalized, they would not consider anything off-label. Well, that's um, very disappointing. You know, a recent paper by Burns and colleagues in JAMA, uh, looking at these hospital protocols that the doctors are so um, adherent to, uh, Burns uh, concluded that the hospital protocols were not trustworthy, that they didn't have a commitment to external review, they didn't have a commitment to being updated. They didn't provide adequate risks and benefits. And so that's very, very disappointing. So you didn't make any headway with any advanced therapies? No, um, I 
I was the one that was speaking with her hospitalist and an ICU specialist. Um, I'm the only one in the family that has medical experience. And um, I, I requested that he, the hospitalist considers, uh, asked him if he would consider ivermectin or any of the um, off-label treatments. And he, his, I think his quote was, we don't use those treatments in America. So there was no, I mean, no consideration at all. Of course, you know, they, they thought about the remdesivir and she was on the early, you know, the earliest protocols, um, you know, hospital protocols, but um, unfortunately she had the, the um, typical expectation once you get into the ICU early on, she, she uh, didn't do well. What was her length of stay in the hospital? She was um, admitted, I, I want to say it was about 10 days. So they admitted her and then she went into the ICU, the COVID ICU. And, um, you know, it kind of fluctuated. She, was, she would do well for a couple of days. It was like two steps forward, three steps back. Um, but she was um, hospitalized. And then 10 days later, I believe nine or 10 days later, she had passed. And did she receive any pre-hospital treatment? Uh, we had got, we did buy her all of the supplements, the vitamin D, the vitamin C, the aspirin. Um, I don't think she took them as I had suggested she did. Um, she was on a lot of medications. I'm sure it was a lot for her to, to process, you know, everything on top of her normal medications. And was she living alone or with her husband? Her husband as well. They, they actually both had it and they both got pretty sick. They were both put in the hospital, but she went in the COVID ICU and he was just um, in, on the COVID unit. Um, but she had also had a lot of comorbidities, um, probably, um, you know, she was diabetic, uh, COP, uh, excuse me, CHF, um, had a number of concerning comorbidities. So she, you know, um, was obviously at a disadvantage going in. So her husband survived and then she uh, died. Um, did, did either one of them receive monoclonal antibodies? No, that was, I believe that was before January of 2020, I think was before the monoclonal antibodies were available, mm -hmm. at least around here. Well, that's a story that so many Americans have lived out over time. It's absolutely tragic. Uh, sometimes we hear about both spouses dying in the hospital, one surviving, one dying. Occasionally, both survive. So it sounds like that got you very interested in, in doing something to make things better for patients. Right. It, it surprised me that um, the hospitalist wouldn't even consider, you know, when, when she he said at one point that she, if anybody walked out of the unit, it would be her. And, um, you know, when she started to decline a little bit, I asked him if he would consider anything off label, ivermectin or anything. And, um, you know, it, it was really disappointing to me that we couldn't sign a release or anything, you know, releasing them of liability, um, understanding it was an off label treatment, not approved for COVID. Um, but it's alarming that they, there wasn't any treatments that seemed to be extremely effective at that time and that they wouldn't consider some pretty benign medications, you know, just to see how she did, if she could pull through it. So it, it made me more interested in seeing what we could do for patients or advice we could give, because I, I slowly started seeing that patients were not doing well in the hospital. And if we could prevent that, you know, getting to that point, that the early therapeutics seem to be the route to go, if, if at all possible. In a recent paper by the first author, Fazio and colleagues, I'm a co-author from Italy, 
we examined like what's the golden time to start early treatment. And we concluded it's actually the first three days of illness. And then beyond that, we start to lose control in terms of having improved outcomes. And the, the day-by-day analyses of monoclonal antibodies show the same thing. So it looks like we have about three days to get organized on early treatment. And as you know now, the nutraceuticals and supplements do play a role. They play probably a larger role with the Omicron variant, which is now mild. What have you learned about uh, nasal and oral washes, virucidal therapy? Well, we've got some easy options for patients to prepare at home, um, which are extremely effective in killing uh, the virus and reducing the viral load in both the um, nasal and oral um, areas where the virus replicates. Um, It seems like with Omicron, because it is a milder variant, but it replicates much faster, um, that if we can kill the virus in those locations with either um, a dilute um, povidone iodine or hydrogen peroxide or even a sodium hypochlorite solution and that we can stop this process for patients early before it really develops into more of a concerning um, disease state. And have you found uh, patients are willing to do this? Oh, I, I think that patients are desperate to have something that they can do um, I think you know just having a plan of action in place because you know there is such a fear associated with the term COVID, um, and people are just scared. You know they want to know they can do something, and there's, um, you know, as you know, there's not a lot of advice being given by medical providers for patients of what to do, how to prevent, how to stop this process from uh, becoming more severe. So I think people just are s- so desperate for any information that they can get to help them. So Claire, in your uh, practice community there in Georgia, uh, is it the case that the majority of primary care doctors uh, don't do any COVID treatment? Uh, That is absolutely my understanding. Um, I do have a couple of colleagues that I'm close with um, and I'm being told by them that they are one of the few primary care practices in our area who is offering early treatments and they can't stay on top of it. In fact, most, as I understand it, most primary care offices are not even seeing COVID patients that they're telling them if you've got COVID or if you're sick, you go to urgent care. And, you know, um, it's, it's a really, it's a strange time for people not to be able to seek medical care from their primary care doctors when they're sick. Um, and we live in a very large medical community, even though it's a relatively small town, we have a large multi-specialty clinic in town and we have two uh, large hospitals. Um, you know, within a couple mile radius of each other. So um, it's, it's very unusual. Patients don't understand why they can't call on their primary care doctor for, for help, you know? The Pfizer combination of the chymase-like three inhibitor plus ritonavir, so two protease inhibitors, uh, that drug uh, has been EUA approved and has positive data from its randomized trial. And then the Merck drug, molnipiravir, also has been EUA approved, has a kind of a lesser impact on outcomes. Uh, from the Merck trials program. Now, these are going to be mainstream pills offered by uh, big pharma. Uh, Do you think that uh, the primary care doctors in your community, are they going to finally get in the game on year three of the the pandemic and start treating patients? You know, I I would like to think so. Um, It seems like so much of this is being driven by the CDC, you know, by medical boards. I think there's many medical providers that are 
almost a little bit reluctant to get involved with any treatment because they're getting their hands slapped or, um, you know, threatened their medical license being threatened. So I don't know if, if we finally have something that is being pushed by pharma that's, you know, we've got some good data on, I hope that they will consider early treatments. Um, I think that that's going to be our only chance. I don't think, I don't think that the, um, you know, repurposed drugs like our ivermectin are, are going to be considered at any point soon. You know, it seems like uh, the first year of the pandemic, it was an hydroxychloroquine based uh, year. And then the second year was more of an ivermectin based year. And ivermectin, the data in general showed a bigger beneficial effect with ivermectin over hydroxychloroquine. Now, the third year of the pandemic may be the year of uh, the Pfizer drug and Merck drug. The interesting thing is, is it still going to be the same uh, doctors and other mid-level providers? You know, there's about a 500 of us and and we're dead tired. We take in uh, massive numbers of calls per day. Uh, the medical community has closed their doors to these patients. We're two years into this. Many of us have t- not even taken a day off. We're worn down. I wonder if primary care will start to step into this. We're in the middle of the Omicron outbreak, the largest outbreak we've seen. It's sky high. The epidemic curves are sky high. It seems like almost everybody is getting it. What are you seeing on the ground in your community with the Omicron outbreak? Well, we have um, six or seven staff members out right now with COVID, um, which I assume is Omicron because they all seem to be milder cases. Um, it, it seems like it is blowing up all over the country. So um, I'm thankful it's a milder, seems to be a much milder course for people, but um, I don't think at this point in time, there's still not any recommendations being given. Um, but, you know, I hope to your point, I hope that they will start to consider some therapeutics this year. Um, so much remains to be seen with, you know, when this variant ends and when, when and if there's another one that begins. You know, with the very fast replication speed of the Omicron variant compared to Delta, it may be ideal for one of these protease inhibitors or polymerase inhibitors. Um, I know in uh, our community that the vast majority of Omicron patients just use over-the-counter solutions only with no prescription drugs at all. There have been some higher risk adults over age 50 who are COVID naive where they uh, you know, haven't been vaccinated. They haven't previously had COVID. And uh, it's been my experience, they've needed a modified sequence multidrug approach with uh, primarily featuring uh, the nutraceuticals and then uh, ivermectin and prednisone and aspirin. Uh, and then I've only had uh, just a few cases that I've been aware of when I actively been advised on uh, in someone who's nearly 90, very old and very um, weak and frail that we've used the monoclonal antibody sotorivimab, which was designed to handle these mutant strains. We know that uh, the Lilly combination of pamelivimab and urtisimab that no longer uh, appears to cover the Omicron variant. And then the workhorse that we've used uh, for the last year, Regeneron, which is carisivimab and indivimab, that also doesn't cover Omicron. So we're left with, uh, with sotorivimab. And the randomized trials look very good. It's 85% reductions in hospitalization and death, well-tolerated. In the FAQ, we can use it down to age 12. So we could use it with, a, let's say, a teenager with cystic fibrosis or Cartagena syndrome or one of these uh, pulmonary syndromes, so we could save a, a child with it. Uh, what are you seeing on the ground there in Georgia? Is there availability to sotorivimab? So my understanding is that there are no monoclonal antibodies available um, around here. So last, I believe it was the end of last week, 
um, that we were told there was none in the Rome area. Um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm not aware if that's changed this week, but I know as of last week, there was none. We heard the same thing. I'm at a very large health system in Texas, the largest health system. We got a memo that came out that said, listen, we're out of monoclonals completely. And that will reassess in mid-January. I was on Sean Hannity radio uh, in the last week. I told Sean, I said, listen, we're at the Battle of the Bulge with Omicron. We've never had so many cases of COVID in the United States. And we're at the Battle of the Bulge and we're out of ammo. Uh, that there will be some high-risk seniors where the viral infection will be overwhelming for them. And we desperately need sotorivimab. So, Claire, um, let's uh, uh, just develop a few ideas about, um, about the use of the oral nasal washes particularly povidone iodine. And uh, what pearls uh, do you have for those who are using this? Uh, let's take uh, the issue of prevention. People want to prevent uh, uh, contracting Omicron. They, they go out to church or a congregate setting, they go home. Uh, what are you uh, seeing being done in the community? Well, I think it's a, if you're out in a group environment, um, when you return home from being in um, any kind of group setting, it's probably a good idea to do some type of a oral uh, rinse and nasal spray. And that can be done uh, easily with povidone iodine, um, where you would just take a shot glass of water. Um, you would put a half teaspoon of 10% povidone iodine, mix it together, um, use it as a gargle uh, for about 30 seconds. Um, you could also do a nasal spray, which um, would be the same uh, dilution and you would just squirt two sprays in each nostril and then make sure you either um, you, um, allow it to flow back out. You don't want to swallow it. Um, and doing, doing that a couple of times a day, um, particularly if you've been exposed or in a large group, um, you would not want to do it long-term. Um, you know, and if you have any kind of thyroid dis dysfunction or if you're pregnant or have any kind of allergy to iodine. Um, and then as an alternative to that, if you do have any um, allergy to iodine or, or pregnant, you could also use a dilute hydrogen peroxide um, solution. And that would be, there's two strengths. The oral strength is a little bit stronger as 1% and it would be an ounce of water with three teaspoons of 3% hydrogen peroxide. Same thing, gargle with that for about 30 seconds, a couple of times a day. Um, the nasal solution is more dilute. It is a 0.3% solution. And that would be, um, again, it would be a one and a half ounce or a shot glass amount um, of water with three quarters teaspoon of 3% hydrogen peroxide. Same thing in a nasal spray bottle, you would uh, spray two sprays into each nostril a couple times a day. So with those, Claire, um, my understanding is you can add a pinch of salt to make it a little bit more uh, physiologic. And if you're just going to use a shot glass, you can just use single use uh, water out of the tap. But if you're going to make a bigger solution, you're going to use for days to use um, either sterile saline or use uh, sterile water. Um, you know, Claire, Claire, I've done this myself. Uh, and so I have a couple of tips. Um, I've made the solution and I use a, a pump spray bottle that I ordered on Amazon. They're very cheap. It was like $2. I was able to get a couple of them. And they're just brown little glass bottles that have a white uh, pumper on it. And uh, I've learned that I have to stand over the sink, kind of uh, pump it several times up into my nasal cavity. Then I sniff it back 
and then I spit it out. So I get it all the way back to the soft palate and I spit it out. It actually does clean out the sinuses, which is really good. And then you know you've gotten it way back. And that uh, this can be done every four hours during the acute illness that was done in the Chowdhury trial. Um, it's very hard to do it every four hours. Honestly, you kind of forget about it, but at least several times a day. And then um, what I do is that um, this uh, you know remainder of what's in the shot glass, you can easily gargle with it. Uh, another gargle solution you can use is regular Listerine, a regular scope that has some antivirucidal activity. So if anything we've learned is to, to do a better job taking care of sinusitis, general viral upper respiratory tract infections, this should work for them as well. Yeah. A little disappointed as an internist uh, and a cardiologist that I've learned about this pretty late in life. We learned about this uh, pivotal clinical trial in 2021. So uh, this is wonderful. We've reviewed on the McCullough report that this results uh, in a rapid clearance of the PCR, turning it negative, as well as reduces the chances of hospitalization and death. So Claire, this has been a wonderful review of uh, your work in your community uh, and how you've been uh, really an exemplary leader on encouraging others to get involved in early treatment of COVID-19. Do you have any final words for the McCullough report? I just, I, I think that this will benefit a lot of people right now during Omicron. I hope that it will be something that will give people a peace of mind knowing they've got a plan. If they can have a plan in place and they already get COVID, I think it will be an easier process. But this is such an easy protocol for patients. Anyone can do it. These ingredients are readily available um, and it seems to really be making an impact for people that are getting this virus. Well, I'll let that be the last word. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report.